Yeah, go ahead. I have a big butt on the Wizards. I know you have a big butt. Everyone has a big butt. <laughs> Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today, we are we're about six weeks into the season. And that means every team has played around 20 games so far. And so I thought, what a great time to check in on the best offenses in the league, on the top teams. We'll also, we'll also discuss some teams are struggling. But this is a great time to check in on how teams are performing and to bring in that deep X's and O's, that schematic component. I could think of no better guest than Steve Jones Jr., the, the wonderful sort of film guru, if you will, as a former film coordinator in the league. And after that, he was the uh, assistant coach with the Brooklyn Nets. He also played college ball. Just a wonderful mind and eye for this stuff. And so Steve and I, over the course of about an hour, get into many of the top teams uh, in the league, what they're doing on offense, what he sees out there, how that bodes for the playoffs. And, of course, there are some teams that are struggling as well that we get to. There is also a post-show for Patreons at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. You can get the post-show over there. And in the post-show, we sort of expand, get a little more philosophical on how some of these offenses are diversifying across the league or what fans think of them or how they might look different now, some of the things that have happened in the last few seasons. So check that. If you're a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, and you subscribe, go over uh, after you listen to this and check out the post-show. Otherwise, without further ado, my conversation with Steve Jones Jr. Thanks for having me back. I am excited to be here. That was my third appearance. I'm, I, I'm gunning for five, and then I'm going to cut you off. That's it. That's my quota. Yeah, that's it. So this is three. You got two more. That's okay. Then we'll just start making videos together. That works. That's that's my strategy. <laughs> um, yeah. So Lonnie Walker, you want to do an entire podcast on Lonnie Walker? I thought that's what I was here for, but it's okay. We don't have to do it. He was great last night, but it's okay. Anyways, are you two points? Hey, two points. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna audit a game. That's what we're doing now in 20, yeah. 2019. Okay. Um, well, are you you're not a Lonnie Walker, the fourth truther? No, I'm not. He's good, but I'm not. I'm not a truther. I didn't see that coming. All of that performance. I mean, he gets a dribble handoff with 12 seconds on the clock and hits a three. Didn't think that was in the tank. Yeah. Doesn't mean I don't think he's good, but I didn't think he had that in him. I'm not yeah. gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. Well, all right. Maybe we'll maybe we'll save the Lonnie the Lonnie Walker for the post show. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to do today, and I could think of no one better to do it than you, is just to dive into some of these teams from the perspective of their playbooks. Right off the bat, Dallas, who was on last night with Luca and Porzingis in the pregame on TNT, Charles Barkley was talking about Porzingis posting up more. Now, let's leave aside for a second that. Porzingis has a center of gravity that's 13 and a half feet high, and he has a hard time getting guys on the block. Uh, just conceptually, that com- comment kind of you know struck a chord with me because from my perspective, I really like some of the synergy Dallas has with the way they're integrating Powell as a role man and Porzingis as a popper and all that. So, Steve, what do you think about sort of the way they're running that offense? It's the best offense of all time right now after 20 games. I think there's a bridge between what you're thinking and what Charles was saying. I think 
Porzingis, because of his size, you expect him to dominate in, in a certain area. But I think conceptually what we're looking at, Porzingis isn't exactly the strongest post player. doesn't mean he can't do well down there. Um, but with what Dallas is trying to do with Luka, the thing they have to do is make sure they keep defenses honest. And I think that may be more to what Chuck was speaking about as far as they have to throw it to him down there sometimes. Because I think what's happening is a lot of teams are just deciding, okay, you're going to put Luka and KP in pick and roll. We're going to switch it. We're going to give you a mismatch. What are you going to do now? That's going to limit his ability to roll. That's going to limit the, the defense having to suck in and help and oh, limit the rotations as far as kicking the ball back out. So if you're not throwing it into them in the post with a mismatch, you're not getting as much out of it. So I think what we're seeing, what we should see going forward, is they've got to mix it up. Because what you're saying about Powell is correct. Um, him being a five as a roller with KP spaced helps Dallas out overall. It, it, it opens up Powell as a threat because of his role, because the floor spaced. Um, but I think what what is has to happen is you got to mix in Porzingis post ups. You have to give him a touchdown there to keep the defensive on it. Defense is honest. If you're not going to give him a look down there, defenses are going to switch that pick and roll, or they're not going to give it as much attention, and you're just going to open yourself up to not having the same rotation. You know what I mean? Yeah, and even so specifically on that, uh, you know, if for those who haven't studied the Mavs playbook this year, um, they use a lot of two-screen action, stagger screen, off-ball, that motion stuff with, with stagger screens off-ball. And they do that, uh, I think, a lot with Porzingis and Palace, the screener, and you get this synergy. But what's interesting to me about what you're talking about is if I were to ignore the fact that Porzingis is 7-3, he essentially functions like a small or a wing on those sets. Do you do you agree with that? Correct. Correct. Right. That's that's what his ability is. He has the height, and so you can bring the big out. But he's basically functioning as a smaller wing, a guard. So he's going to be spaced, and it's going to let Powell roll. And you hope that creates the advantage. But you're you're entirely correct. On right. That. So even I mean, to me, even I'm thinking about the options off of some of those sets. Like he'll back cut or head back door or slip uh, but it never really materializes like a it's not it's not designed to get a post up let's put it that way right that's true yeah that's correct it's not designed for a, a kp post up it's designed to force pressure on that four man to have to think do i have to help on pal's role right uh, you know the big has to help on, as lucas coming off so the biggest thing is how does Dallas continue to put pressure on that format? Because the more they play, the more tape's going to be out there. And if they see that, okay, we don't really have to worry about that kick. We can figure that out. That limits Powell's ability as a role man. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're saying uh, a diversity, you know, like another option as a counter that they could go to as the season goes on would be to spring or turn some of those things into Porzingis post-up. I mean, it sounds like you are sort of, um, I don't want to say buying into entirely what Charles is saying, but you're advocating for that as something that will actually help them as the season goes on. If they get the mismatch, I think it does. I don't think you have to force feed them. Like, it's not like you have to just post them up on the block and go right to them. I think it's just something you have to throw out there to keep the defense honest, to let you know, hey, this is something we can go to, something we will go to, 
And now you're second guessing, hey, okay, I, I don't know if I want to do this. Because the secret sauce is really Porzingis at the five. Dallas hasn't gone to it that much, but that's what their secret sauce is going to be going forward. Um, so it's to, to unlock all the potential they have offensively with two bigs playing, you got to have one being a roller and one being a shooter. And it can't just be KP being a shooter. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If, I mean- he's, if he's just a shooter, you're limiting – kind of everything offensively because now you know Powell's going to roll. I know KP's going to pop. So as a defense, I can sit and know, okay, I know exactly what's going to happen in the coaches' meeting. I could say, hey, this is what they're trying to do. We know Powell's going to roll. We know KP's going to pop. So Dallas has to find ways to kind of mix that up even when they're playing together so that the defense has to think of it as a threat instead of this is an automatic. We know exactly what's going to happen. How much of that do you think falls on Porzingis, I mean, I joked about the high center of gravity, but where where do you stand on him as a guy who can punish punish post Mitch? Boy, this is a hard one to say. Let me try it. Let me try to get it's okay. It's sorry, just go really quick. Punish post mismatches right now, and you know it's one thing to get a switch and have a, a strongish guard hold you at eighteen feet, but um, you know I think ideally for this to work, you want him to get on the block and use his height you know how much how much do you buy into Porzingis having a game like that that would make those mismatches and plays efficient well I mean he's so tall even if they just threw it to him on the block or at the elbow and he rose up and shot that's a pretty decent look right well I think they they have that at the elbow right now I mm-hmm. think right so the question is can you improve upon that because that mm, that might be okay, depending on you know if he's fourteen feet and he's got a clean catch. But some of these are getting out to like fifteen, seventeen, eighteen feet, and he, in my opinion, he can get that whenever. Yes, and he can get that on bigs. So if he's going to pop and be at that range, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same efficiency. It's not going to put the same pressure on defenses. If he can get to the block, even if it's the mid post. That becomes a different story. Maybe a defense throws a double at him, and now you can open some more things up. But if he's going to pop and operate the same as he does against bigs, it's not going to have the same pop. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's stay on Dallas because they're one of the more interesting teams to me. I love their second unit. And so we've been talking right now about – uh, you know, Luca and all these things going through him and all the actions with the popping big and the rolling big. But when he goes off the floor, they're still fairly effective. They have, you know, they run good stuff. They have good players. What do you see about how the offense changes there um, and any other sort of intricacies about what they're doing when he's on the bench? Honestly, it's their guard play. Um, Rick Carlisle probably doesn't get enough credit for what he gets out of guards and his ability to play two guards at a time. I always joked he was going to play Devin Harris and J.J. Barea until the end of time. But um, <laughs> Now he's got something similar with, yeah. with Brunson. Yeah, he's got Brunson. He's got DeLon Wright. So he has two point guards on the floor to have that playmaking. So you can run a lot of the same things, and you can run it through different outlets. So I think the one thing when Dallas goes to their bench, they can still run their offense. They've got a couple guys who can – attack and then if the the set doesn't work they can play out of it i think that's the biggest thing that i'm i've been seeing is hey okay set didn't work we could swing it we got another pick and roll we're still in our offense and we're still initiating actions so um that's one of the things that that guard play playing two guards has been huge for dallas the last four five six years i would say that's such a great point and even you know i i don't necessarily think of right as a point guard and yet now I'm running through these sets in my mind and 
it's often either Berea or Wright or uh, uh, Brunson or Wright. Um, yeah, this is this is why we brought you in here, Steve. Hey, I mean, we, I'm I'm glad I can help. Should we do a Costanza and shut it down on a high note right now? <laughs> that's yeah, it. end it, end it. Call the podcast. We'll do five minutes, and that'll be great. <laughs> this is a new format. <laughs> We're gonna try it out. Um, let's talk about speaking of fresh in our mind. The Raptors had a great game against. Boy, wasn't that fun? That game against Miami last night. That was a fun one. Yeah, I will say that was a fun one. And uh, if you follow Steve on Twitter, um, Steve, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Steve Jones twenty. Steve so Jones twenty. Mm-hmm. So if you if you head over to Steve Jones twenty, if you don't follow Steve, I don't, I don't know why not. Um, but you have already dug into the film on this Toronto Miami game. Let's start with Toronto. They are exceeding expectations for most people. Um, I look at them. I love I love Nurse. I love their stuff. I love their spacing. Talk to me about what you see. They do have the seventh best offense in the league right now. What they they have an identity. They know exactly what they want to do on both ends of the floor, and that's what they do. They play nine, ten guys. Uh, Nick Nurse has found the guys that he trusts to execute what he wants to get done on both ends, and they're going to do what they do. You're not going to be able to blow them out. They're not. They may not pull away every game, but they're going to be right there. Um, they have high IQ guys. I think one of the things I've been impressed with is Ananobi has been able to take a leap. You have Fred Van Fleet taking a leap as he becomes a starter. So, you know, him and Lowry as a backcourt. You have Marcus Gasol as a center. What I like is they they maximize what they can do. You know, it's a mixture of pick and roll. It's a mixture right. of off-ball movement. But the little things they do every night, I think I put a clip on there. They set a Lowry-Siakam pick and roll. And usually when you put your two best players in action, it's going to be an ISO. Or it's trying to get a mismatch or anything like that. Marcus Gasol set a, a, a screen on the weak side to get Norman Powell three. And that, for me, felt like the Raptors in a nutshell. You can't necessarily pinpoint exactly what to stop, um, even with Siakam playing at a high level. So their team element has been such a key so far early in the season. Um, they're kind of a moving target, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way. I mean, that's the that's the balance, sort of having this multipolar attack where it can come from different prongs. But there's a lot to unpack there. I actually wanted to start with Ananobi because I've heard people say uh, you know he's not necessarily uh, as impressive as they thought he would be or I think you're the first person I've heard say he's taking a leap and what's interesting to me is I think what you just said fits so perfectly with how you describe the Raptors success he's improved to me at all the little identity areas right like catch and shoot especially attacking closeouts just all these other things, like he needs to be the, the roles he needs to play on defense. Um, what do you think? Like, what specifically has jumped out from OG to you? It's been the consistency. I, I think it's been that he has still has some room to to make progress wise, but it speaks kind of to a larger identity. I don't want to get too far into it, but it feels like every time they play, every guy knows what they're supposed to do and they execute it. So I don't know. He never tries to do anything. To, that's out of pocket, so to speak. He's going to go ahead and space the floor. He's going to attack closeout. If he's open, he might shoot it. You know, he has to improve shooting wise, but he's going to drive the closeout. He's going to pass to an open guy and keep the offense moving. So his leap has been not just defensively, because that's been the biggest one, but just being able to, okay, 
I'm a threat. I'm someone out here where you may not guard me, but I'm going to attack. I'm going to pass. I'm going to drive and kick. I'm going to find ways to fit in the offense. And that's helped them in the long in the long run as far as the early season has gone. So I see that as, you know, quick decision making to me. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the dimension. And, and there are some dimensions. I'm trying to work on some videos on these. The first one's going to be on movement. But when I think of like things that are almost never discussed and never quantified, and yet you can see tangible improvements that make huge differences, it's it's movement and decision making. And to me, Ananobi right now is a guy who's a who is a supporting piece on offense, but his decision making and the crispness of his actions, the way he either moves it along, shoots, attacks the closeout, he'll attack the closeout and then move it along. Um, that's been the biggest improvement to me. Yes, I agree. Quit decision making. Um, you know, may not always be the best decision speaking to his growth and potential, but he's making a decision. He's living with it. And also, you know, look at a guy like Norman Powell. Uh, every time I feel like I watch them, he's continuing to make strides offensively and making plays. And that's huge for that team. That's huge for him. So I think the complementary pieces are figuring themselves out. They know what they have to do in the sense of the offense and the whole team plays together. So I think those two combined is really what's helping them grow early in the year. Yeah. And I I love them preseason because of a lot of these things. You have nurses coaching, but you also have a lot of high IQ guys. And then on offense, they they can get away with playing Van Vliet and Lowry at the same time because of their defensive strength, specifically Lowry's ability to switch up and things like that. And so you have a team of really good passers. You have shooters. You have that two-point guard thing that we talked about with Dallas's bench, right, where mm-hmm. you can go side to side on the offense. Uh, I, I think, yeah, they're, they're super fun to watch to me. They're one of my favorite teams to watch. I, I'd agree. I would totally agree. What about the team that beat them <laughs> in overtime? Um, the Miami Heat, what are they doing? How, how do you feel about some of the stuff they're running, their their playbook, and, of course, um, how Jimmy Butler fits into that now? The biggest thing is Miami's been running really good sets for the last three, four years. They just haven't had the threat to put the cherry on top, if that makes sense. Yeah. And last night, playing against Toronto, you could see the impact of Jimmy Butler. Toronto was showing multiple coverages, a lot of traps. They showed some drops, but they were trying to adjust to his talent, and that opened a lot of plays up for everyone else. Um, So that's a huge impact for Miami. And then I think you look at uh, the way that Winslow played, especially in the fourth quarter, having another playmaker, and then you can use Jimmy Butler as a threat on the weak side. That also helps them. So he's a threat on the ball. He's a threat off the ball. It opens things up for them because Miami's had a good playbook for years. They just haven't had that punch. You know what I mean? To where defense is like, ooh, we really got to guard this. They had a tough time guarding it, but they felt comfortable in their schemes. Now, that was an impressive win because it never felt like Miami was out of pocket or they were about to panic or struggling. They kept their composure, especially in that fourth quarter, even with the overtime. So it was an impressive win. And I just like the makeup of their team. Butler's really impacted them on both ends. Yeah. So uh, as someone who's not as familiar with some of the stuff they've been running, would you say it's the same this year and Butler is fitting into that? Are there any wrinkles that are taking advantage of the fact that, you know, Butler is a severe step up from any kind of isolation score they've had in the last few seasons? Honestly, they're using the same concepts um, and adding him into it. 
is what I would say. There's nothing that says, hey, we're building a package towards Jimmy Butler. They may use him in different scenarios at different times, but most of the bulk of their actions, off-ball, handing off, um, screening on the weak side, those are things they've been doing. He just adds different punch to it. So, you know, especially the the way you answer the way you asked that question, it made me think of, you know, Justice Winslow was really handling the ball in the fourth quarter. Right. So that tells me, hey, this is what we're doing. We just have something else we can throw at you. You know what I mean? I mean, this is yet another team we've stumbled upon that's successful right now. They have a one ten offensive rating. Uh, I think they're I mean, they've been impressive. Of course, the defense is a huge part of that, but having multiple playmakers on the court. You know, last year it was uh, it was point guard justice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you see some of that carrying over where throughout the game last night, I thought, as you pointed out, some of those traps and all these other things, well, the ball trickles into a different part of the offense or you have to move it, and now Winslow can come in and attack and make decisions and get in the lane. Yeah, and, and the biggest thing is they've been able to maintain kind of that lineup versatility it's not so much, hey, we need Hassan Whiteside to roll for us to have something that the defenses are going to worry about. They're able to have uh, a situation where Myers Leonard can space the floor. Myers Leonard can roll. Kelly Olenek can space the floor. Kelly Olenek can roll. They can still go small and throw Derek Jones Jr. out there. Maybe he plays the four or the five. So they have different lineups they can throw at teams, and that's able to unlock a lot of things with them. They've always been a ball movement team. They've always been a – uh, you know, quote unquote, culture first team, but you can see they're really putting things together night in and night out, and that ball is popping. They're playing. They had a lot of really good possessions last night against Toronto. It's, it's been fun to watch them grow as the season starts. Yeah, or Kelly Olynyk can ghost cut, which he did a couple times. Describe the ghost cut for people that don't know. So basically, uh, in a pick and roll, whether it's one man on the weak side or two men on the weak side. Um, Sometimes the weak side is going to ball watch. So basically, as the ball handler is coming off the pick and roll, whoever's on the weak side, they're going to back cut and time that up perfectly so that as that weak side man is watching the ball, losing sight of their man, he's already at the rim for a layup. And Olenek had a couple last night. It's been a staple of Miami for a while. D-Wade, I think D-Wade started it. I'll just give credit because he's retired. But (laughs) (laughs) it's been a huge thing for them. And honestly, it's probably spread throughout the league a little bit. Weak side cuts. Um, Well, yeah. And and just to, you know, connect it back to what I was saying earlier about movement, to be clear – this is a read in that action from the weak side guy. So if you're if you're in the corner, I think Olinick, the first one I saw last night, he was in the corner. So he's spotting up in the corner. Mm-hmm. You, you have the pick and roll action in the center of the floor. And then when that help tagging defender, when when he turns his head, you make the read as the corner guy to slip behind and you have ghosted your way. He has no idea where you are. Um, we have a phone call coming in. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that's the that's the that's the idea of the ghost cut, right? It is it is yes. a read uh, that that is part of that action, even though it's off ball. So you wait what, for your guy to look away. One thousand percent, yes, yeah. sir. And then that is something that is definitely, um, I think, becoming more prevalent for me in the old days. It was like specific guys would do it, mm-hmm. right? Like Avery Bradley, I always thought was was sort of a master of because he'd just sit in the corner all game, and then he would learn. My guy looked away. Um, but that is something that we're seeing more and more throughout the league and adds another little wrinkle. Um, let's jump to the Lakers. 
Lakers, another team that played last night, game in Denver. They have the eighth best offensive rating right now, right around 111 points per 100. Of course, LeBron, Anthony Davis, running pick and roll. What do you think of the Vogel playbook so far this season? Um, how, how does it look to you integrating those two guys? I think it's been good because he's not just relying on them to make plays, if that makes sense. He runs a lot of actions, a lot of elbow actions, uh, a lot of corner actions to try and get movement, which really helps when they go to the second unit. Um, Because you can always fall back to a LeBron AD pick and roll or a two-man game or anything like that. So what I've been impressed with is the ability to recognize, I can always get to this. Let me make sure I run some sets to get everyone going. Um, You know, I think I was watching the game last night against Denver. They ran a stagger for KCP. It didn't work. And they went right into pick and roll. So it's not so much, hey, we have two great players. We're going to showcase them all the time. It's we have a team to worry about. We'll always get back to that. Let's make sure that we're running things that everyone can run, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, and I think I think that's unfair to have that as a <laughs> the AD LeBron pick and roll as your as your sort of floor raiser, your backstop to prevent the offense from you know that late clock offense is to have that in your back pocket is incredible. It was absurd. It's one of those <laughs> things. I did the I did the same thing with the Warriors last year when they would do stuff with KD and Steph Curry at the end of the clock, but like. They literally ran a stagger for Ken, uh, KCP. It didn't work, and they were like, okay, fine, we'll run pick and roll with LeBron and Anthony Right. Davis. And, like, okay. <laughs> like, as a defense, we've done our job, and now we have to deal with this. That's tough. But um, I think they've evolved. I think a lot of people were pretty reactive early in the season because they were really Anthony Davis post-heavy. Um, and I think they've kind of worked on that, fixed that. I think the biggest thing has been the spacing. Uh, they still have to continue to make sure they work on that. But when you have those shooters with LeBron or Anthony Davis posting up, you're putting yourself in a really good space um, and forcing defenses to make a decision. The more they can do that, the better off they're going to be in the long run. So if we fast forward that long run to April and May in the postseason, is this the kind of offense that – to me, I think of it as like more resilient, more inelastic, right? It's harder to scheme against. Do you buy into that idea where, you know, we can we can run all this stuff early in the clock and we can fall back on AD LeBron pick and roll. We'll mix, you know, we'll mix in an early clock AD LeBron pick and roll. And then if we need to, we can go to Davis in the post. Like, in other words, do you buy the idea that they're putting in the infrastructure that will be very difficult to scheme against in the playoffs? Absolutely. Um, I honestly wish they had more tempo in the regular season because the way they're operating sometimes in the half court, wait until about 16 seconds to get their offense going. Uh, they, they're leaving some points on the table to me, but what they're doing is, is going to be tough to handle in the postseason because you're going to have mismatches. They're going to put you in tough positions, whether it's just a straight LeBron post up with spacing, whether it's a LeBron AD pick and roll with a switch and, and posting up and getting a mismatch. Those are little things that they're working on now so that when it comes down to, to it later in the season, it's going to be really tough for you to really make a decision. So I think what they're doing right now is building for that time in, in the postseason. So if we juxtapose that against a team that is running over people, their offense looks better in the regular season, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. How do you feel like last year, right, there was this idea that they got schemed out of the playoffs a little bit. 
volume shooting threes but not accuracy, load up on Giannis and sink into the post. Uh, how do you feel about the Bucks trajectory this year, knowing what we've seen in the last season? I feel bad for the Bucks, honestly. Ooh, ooh. All right, I'm going to step back and have a cup of coffee. Go for it. This is a strong take. It I mean, is, they're yeah. playing. They're they're playing well. There's nothing they're necessarily doing wrong. They're crushing. People. I just feel like I feel like we're at a point where a lot of people gave Milwaukee credit last year, right? And yeah, they were they great. Lost. They lost in the playoffs. And they're still doing really well. So it's kind of like, a, okay, Milwaukee's really good. We'll see what they do in the postseason, which isn't fair, but that's the reality. Um, I think it comes down to can they figure out what to do when teams just say, we're going to throw things at Giannis? You know what I mean? So their destiny doesn't feel like it's going to be decided by anything in the next 60 games. We can agree on that, right? Well, in a way, I think what I want your insight on, having having been in the trenches, can, is can you put into place counters or things? Like, if we look at the Lakers' offense right now, and granted, the Lakers have been able to play some very defensive-centric lineups, so you you know don't put all your stock in this, but they're eighth in offensive rating. The Bucks are second. The Bucks are over 114. They're in that awesome range. Is there anything you can put in now that might not necessarily be as successful night to night, but it's a way to build up some of those counters. It's a way to build up an antidote, if you will, to what you know teams are going to throw at you in April and May. No, because you're not going to see the same coverage as in the regular season. So they could hypothetically throw some different counters out there to try and prepare for it, but they're not going to see the same coverages in the postseason they're going to see now. Does that make sense? That makes like, Yeah, keep going. Like teams are gonna want to take away Giannis, but they're not gonna focus on it laser handed. Like well, we're gonna go ahead and take this away and make you kick it out and get everyone going. Teams have gotten away from maybe the game to game game plan. So Milwaukee's not gonna see their toughest schemes until the playoffs. So all they can do is just kind of build as a team and use their knowledge of last year to know that. So, honestly, probably playing in tighter games might help them, but they're not going to see what they will see in the postseason now. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, teams aren't going to throw that at them now. So they've just got to try and prepare and build what they have team-wise to where, okay, we know what you're going to try and throw at us. We're ready for whatever. I I buy that component of it, especially since there's so much less. You know, you don't have that night-to-night scheming, per se. But I think I think the sliver there that I would say they possibly could work is player development, sp- specific guys, right, in spots that they weren't in last year. Or for me in the Toronto series, and by the way, that was an extremely close series. You know, the Bucks could be the darling of the league with a few shots, you know, with Fred Van Vliet not having his kid for another week or whatever it is right just so so just just to give them credit right like not just not to write a sweeping narrative they were very close and will be in the same position but you can also be very close and have your offense deflate a little bit and I thought that happened in specific spots and from the player perspective one of the guys that jumped out to me not to single him out too much but Eric Bledsoe and just sort of what happened to him in key moments when they brought extra help on Giannis, when it was four on threes, um, you know, can you move him to other positions? Are there other guys that can come in and get minutes to 
change that dimension. I feel like that's something that historically has happened. You one season something gets taken away, the next season you bring in uh I don't know Brian Russell, right? I'm just thinking of random role players who have all of a sudden filled a need and it's helped in the playoffs. That that I think is something that I could buy into in terms of what Milwaukee could do in the next 60 games. Now, here's my question for you as you say that cuz their bench is going to look pretty good in this regular season, right? I think so, yeah. How important is their bench going to be in the postseason? I think, I mean, that's that's a great question. Because to me, you have pretty serious diminishing returns after you get to about the seventh or eighth guy, usually, in those situations. doesn't mean you can't have a ninth or tenth or eleventh guy that is part of a key rotation in the playoffs. Or sometimes you'll see teams, you know, uh, Dallas in 2011 did this, where one series it was Stojakovic. Uh, one series it was um, uh, uh, who was the other the other three now I'm totally blank they just swapped out like small forwards in different series Mm -hmm. basically um, in 2011 so outside of that I think that's a great point because to me it's not about running people over with your bench that's going to get taken away in the playoffs it's more about finding a guy or two who can give you a different look on offense I agree now, so who, honestly, now, who that is, I don't know. <laughs> well, here's the interesting point, because we're talking about a team that scored 130 points in back-to-back games. Yeah, they're but, pretty good. <laughs> but what I'd say is they're, they have to find a lineup that teams can't defend, and that's probably going to end up with Giannis at the five. Brooke Lopez has been great, don't get me wrong, but to take it to the next level, they're probably going to have to find that lineup where it's Giannis, Middleton, Bledsoe, and two other people. I don't know if it's Corver, I don't know if it's George Hill, Wesley Matthews, whatever. But they have to find that lineup that can space the floor, enhance Giannis. That's going to get them through the postseason. The regular season, their benches look great early this year. Uh, they have depth. They have talent. They are good. But how much are defenses going to be scared of Dante DiVincenzo and Ersan Ilyasova and Sterling Brown and George Hill? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and I think I think to your point, it probably has to be one of Hill or Sterling Brown or a deadline move, right? You don't need you don't need a third star. You don't need no. like, you don't need Giannis and then Middleton and then another star. What you need is a guy to your point to fill out a lineup like that where he's a he's a great spot up shooter or whatever it is. Like he spaces the floor. He gives you that five out look and you don't get skewered on defense that that's all you need from i mean we got into this conversation from the perspective of the bench i think that's all you need from developing bench players it's true but also they can throw kyle cover out there and nothing we're saying could make any sense so it might not matter <laughs> how old is kyle cover he's like 61 how he old is. is he but you know what? No one's going to let him shoot an open three in the playoffs. I'll yeah. tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, man. He is uh, absolutely incredible. Let's go to the team that they knocked knocked out of the playoffs last year unceremoniously, the Celtics. And I'm interested. So there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, Kemba Walker replacing Kyrie, how the Celtics offense has changed. I think there are some very subtle things that have happened but i i want your take on what you see out on the floor with the celtics right now the celtics have just gone back to what works for them um to be honest and i hate saying it because every time i mention that people take it as a oh kyrie's gone right 
and they just jump on that. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. Because they ran the same things as Kyrie's first year. Last year, and here's my underrated point, they went way too far left when it comes to talent, if that makes sense. So they stopped running the same stats. They stopped running as much movement, and they said, okay, we have talent. Go ahead and go. Attack, early pick and roll, ISO, whatever. And it didn't work. So <laughs> I was watching it, and it was like, this isn't quite what you – it's not working the same. You know, it's not that Brown and Tatum weren't talented, but they were put in a position where they had to go and manufacture their points. Right. This year, they have the movement back. They have multiple attacks. The Celtics are at their best under Brad Stevens when you don't know what's coming. So you don't know where, you know, Tatum or Brown or Kim is going to get the ball. And they can go ahead and attack defenses that are kind of reacting or rotating. That helps them more than anything, as opposed to coming up, dribbling, straight pick and roll, ISO. That doesn't work as well for this team. So I think they've gotten back to their roots. They've been able to move the ball, move their bodies, have off-ball movement. And now they look a lot better. And I don't think it's a Kyrie versus Kimba thing, and that's no discredit to either guy. I just think it's kind of Brad Stevens looking at it and saying, hey, this didn't work. Let's get back to what makes us good. And it's been working out ever since. Well, I think it's such a great point. And I think there's it even it, it's being magnified from both directions because not only does he put them in a better position to succeed, them being specifically these wings that they have, but those guys have gotten better as well. And so you have another year of growth versus last year where they had the crazy high expectations coming off the playoff run without Kyrie. And this year, both I feel like both Jays, Brown and Tatum, are making quicker decisions, uh, putting their head down faster. Now, Tatum's still got to work on his finishing, but these things, it's like we simplify the offense a little bit, we put you in a position to succeed, and you can get back to making those quicker, better decisions that were a sort of a staple of the 2018 run. The best point you made was the quicker decisions. When they make quick decisions, they look great, even if they uh, drive and kick. When they make quick decisions, they look great. When they hold the ball, bad things happen. So I like that you pointed that out. I should have stopped after quicker decisions. That should have been it. No, you nailed it. No, I hit a home run. <laughs> but I think, Very- you know what I think is throwing people a little bit? It, a, from my opinion, I don't know how you feel, but Kyrie and Kemba are are both high level. Like they're not that different as as players in terms of talent or impact. They're both very good, and so I think what's throwing people a little bit is if you watch the Celtics last year at the end of close games, their clutch offense was ridiculous, and it was a lot of really successful high pick and roll stuff, especially with Irving, and he's such a skilled shooter that it's like okay, that may be the thing I remember from the offense last year that's the thing that's like in my memory now i tune in and i watch the celtics and at the end of games what do they often go to a lot what's what's happening at the end of games a lot it's it's like the same thing right Mm -hmm. you get a lot of kemba high pick and roll and kemba can get into his office where he operates and the step backs and turning the corner um and yet i think to your point there's something subtly different here i love that that point about uh simplifying things a little bit but, yeah, Celtics 110 offensive rating right now, and that is 10th in the league. Yeah, I feel bad for Kyrie. That's all, that's all I'll say. He's going to get a lot of flack as the Celtics do better, and it may not all be undue, but some of it is. Um, where are the Wizards 
Offensive. Oh, very high. Their offensive rating is like 113, I think. Let me let me pull it up. Um, let's see. The Wizards, 113, and they are fourth. But, yeah, go ahead. I have a big butt on the Wizards. I know you have a big butt. Everyone has a big butt. <laughs> the Wizards, and I'm just going to throw this out there. The Wizards, one of the most fun teams to watch this year. I don't know what it means. Well, but they, they can score, and they play well offensively, and it's fun to watch. And it means nothing, and well, I feel bad. It, here's what, <laughs> here's the big but. It when you play lineups that are that offensively slanted, you're you're going to have some you're going to have some flow, some success, some excitement. But they give up so much defensively that it's almost it's just inflated. It's artificial, and that and that's not to be too hard on them because I think some of their offensive players and specifically Bradley Beal uh, are really good. But if you ran a more traditional set of lineups with them, like they they threw out Rui at the five last night. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean that's, I mean, come on, why not? Let's just play five guards. They might. They might. In a couple they, weeks. That might not be the worst idea. This is some old school Don Nelson stuff. Let's just play five guards, and we might, you know, we might win the game one fifty nine, one fifty eight. We might lose the game one fifty nine, one fifty eight. It's just interesting because the Wizards don't have the young pieces to give them that young core bump, you know, like the Nets had or the Hawks have, where it's like, ooh, this team is on the rise. Right. So they're just kind of scoring a lot of points and existing, and you can't really, like, say that they're bad, but you also can't really be excited for them. I just think they're in a weird place, like, because <laughs> they score a bunch of points, and they they give up just as much as they score. I I love to watch them. They're probably one of my favorite teams to watch they, so far. Well, they went with the bold offseason move of having no defensive talent on the entire roster. <laughs> so I think they um I think they set a precedent right out of the game. Am I being too hard on Thomas Bryant? I don't think so. I mean, a lo- no, you're good. No, a little <laughs> bit. But no, you're good. You're all right. Um Let's let's that's a that's a great segue maybe into a, a problem team or two we can hit before we get to some questions. Um, Philadelphia 76ers, a team that I was incredibly high on in the preseason. I don't know if I've changed my mind at all. This is kind of exactly the slog I thought they would go through offensively. Have you been able to get a look at them? The, you know, no more J.J. Redick dribble handoff elbow stuff, although they do still run some of it. Um what do you think is going on there offensively with them? It's just a battle night in, night out. They have a, they still have a really good starting lineup. They have a really good five-man lineup. It's just finding the shooter every night and finding the balance every night. Um, the thing that J.J. Reddick gave them last year was, okay, we can run a bunch of stuff with him running around. They don't necessarily have that guy in that starting lineup anymore. Um, Corkmouse has been great this year to me, but he's still got work to do to hit that next level. Um, I think it's just figuring out what they want to do in clutch situations because they have so many options. You know, you can go to Horford, you can go to Harris, you can go to Embiid, you can go to Simmons or Richardson. So it's just finding the balance and the shooting night in and night out. The consistency has been the biggest issue. What have you seen that has surprised you from this unit i i think maybe in a slightly negative way i wanted a little bit more from richardson as a point of attack 
creator. Like Simmons, when you get in the half court, Simmons is not a point guard to me. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't have any of that functionality in his game really. Now I I like that his post game is coming along more, but that obviously doesn't get used a lot. So when you get in the half court, I really see Richardson and Tobias Harris as the guys who need to flex more muscle creating or they got to bring another guard in. It's almost like we we talked about all these teams at the top that are playing two guards, multiple creators, point of attack and it's not that I think Philadelphia's offense is atrocious. It's just I think they need a little they they need a little bit extra boost from having a guy. It's like there's only so much you can do with Horford dribbling around into handoffs or cuts and they're not even using them as much like that as the Celtics did. So, to me they need I don't know who that is, but like like you were talking about um Kirk um what is what is his name? Corkmaz. Uh, God, I was going to mm-hmm. call him Forkmaz and then I was like, wait, his that's his first name. It's um, okay. Yeah. It's okay. But because like to me, he's he's blossomed as a guy, blossomed is a generous word. He's been much better in either making that shot or getting to the rim, right? And mm-hmm. it, and it's like that still doesn't necessarily solve their problems. Yeah. I, I'd agree. And I think another step is what is their pressure point? What is the thing that's going to make defenses worry? Because is it going to be MB posting up? Is it Harris handling the ball? Is it Richardson handling the ball? Is it Horford with dribble handoffs or setting screens? They, I think they haven't figured out that part of it yet, which has made it tough for them to hit the next level. You know what I mean? Like, it might be a Tobias Harris Al Horford pick and roll that you can't guard one night, but if the next team team can, now what do you do? So they have a bunch of options. Now it's figuring out how to optimize them. To me, is going to get them to the next level. So do you think? I mean, my bet in the preseason was that by the time the playoffs rolled around, they would essentially have some combination of that and you know, super difficult to handle uh, King Kong Joel Embiid down on the block. Do you think they can? get there they got a long they got 60 more games to do it they got a lot of time to spare right so i i don't think it's a doom and gloom situation for them it's just this is the adjustment period they got to figure out exactly what they're going to do and what direction they're going to it it may be just feeding Embiid and reaching off him it may be letting tobias and horford play two-man game or pick and roll they have the options to really hurt defenses with that lineup but it's just can they find it each night because the nights where they don't, they look rough. The nights when they do, they look great. So can they kind of find that middle or exceed and get to that great level more often than not? How do you, how do you feel, before we leave Philadelphia, how do you feel about their 1987 Charles Barkley clear-out offense for Embiid, where they just give him the ball and everybody goes to the other side without like much of anything happening at all? It's interesting. Um, interesting yeah I, right it's they give him the ball but <sighs> i wish they would kind of give him a little bit before that give him a cross screen or something maybe have some screening action off of it um you can use horford with that it's just when you just throw him into the post and everyone clears out and everyone knows he's gonna try and shoot and score it just makes it tough on everyone um, and then the spacing of it, where Simmons going to be, is going to be on the dunker, right? You know, all that good stuff. It, I don't hate it because he's so talented, but I just feel like they can always get to that. 
Um, and it's weird because then they there's some games where they just won't even do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like he'll space on the perimeter and they won't even go to him in the post. So I don't know if I can complain about the post ups that are 1999-esque or, <laughs> or ask a- more of them. Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. That's a perfect summary. It's not that they're bad. They're plenty good. I just want, I would just love to see wrinkles either getting into them or I feel like once he get it and it's, gets it and they clear out, like the most complicated thing is movement from Simmons will flash a little bit sometimes to the lane or make a cut from the dunker spot, whatever. But I feel like they could do so much more on the weak side. So anyway. Uh, now, here's, here's what I'll say. The Sixers are like a dish or a sauce that's missing something. They just got to figure out what it's missing. Like all the ingredients are on there. There's just one thing that's off and they'll figure it out. That's what I think. That's my take. That's a lukewarm take. Yeah, well, the question is, is it a uh, a rare white truffle or is it a pinch of salt? That's the question. <laughs> uh, let's go to let's go to Q and A. Let's do some let's do some Q and A from the Twitter. Um, maybe let's start with this one at LG thirty five. I want to know what's wrong with uh, what's wrong with Jokic, Steve Jones. I it's, he's been really tentative. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, from what I was, I was rewatching the Lakers Nuggets game today, and he just didn't have the same punch to him. Um, as far as being aggressive, and it's not so much he has to shoot every time, but even his dribble handoffs, it was one dribble, come get it, a slight roll. They put a guard on him in the post. He might post up. He might not. I don't know if it was a frustrating with, frustration with not getting the ball or what was happening, but he he was just off last night, and he runs that whole engine. You know, his ability to... Uh, score, attack, rebound, screen, dribble handoff, pass. That elevates Denver to the next level. And if if he's going to be passive, it kind of just limits their ceiling. So I hope he, he's able to figure it out because um, they're a much more fun team to watch when he's playing at a high level than when he's kind of tiptoeing around. Yeah, for me, that's kind of how I feel. And I think the the silver lining is that if all he has to do is get re-engaged, that seems like something that could happen as the season progresses and the playoffs roll around and the competitive juices kick in. It's certainly not the first time in league history uh, a very talented big man has been slightly disengaged. Yeah, so I, uh, he's got the benefit of the doubt from me after last year. So um, it's just a matter of, of him finding the aggressiveness because it's not like you know you spoke about what, what was it 1980 clear our offense the the it's 76ers not, used to run that for Barkley all the time in the late yeah, 80s yeah it's it's not like it's that's what Denver's doing Jokic gets the ball in a million spots they use him in a million different ways he's going to get the ball too much to be this disengaged all year it's just weird to kind of see him kind of take a step back like they put him in action with Jamal Murray and he was like I'm gonna take a dribble and they turned it over and I was like that I don't know what's going on so as soon as he gets locked in, he'll be fine. Denver should be okay. I feel like every time everyone doubts Denver, they just kind of win eight games in a row, and that's it. You know, this is making me think. I did a podcast last year with Adam Mares, who uh, with, for the Nuggets, and we actually talked about earlier in the year Jokic being more aggressive. And then and I was like, that's what I want to see from Jokic. I want to see a much higher level 
of aggression. It's all the little things we've been talking about, just attacking off a handoff, the two-man game action versus you know setting back like he did sometimes last night. And it, it's making me wonder, is this only being magnified now because Jokic's you know, postseason last year was a breakout for him, basically? I would say yes. Once you hit a certain level, there's a certain expectation. So I'd say that plays a part of it. But I also think um, as more people have watched the Nuggets, you know how important of a PC is. So when he's not as engaged, it kind of jumps off the page a little bit because, you know, it's like, what's he doing? The funny part, I was watching that game. I was like, if this happened in the playoffs last year, he would have gotten roasted. But it didn't. It was a regular season game, so he's fine. So I think he's going to be okay. I think um, Denver's in a fine spot to continue to do well. It's just making sure they continue to run the actions and they keep that chemistry going. They didn't really run some of the things they normally do as far as getting him screening, getting Murray involved with them, but um, I'm sure that may have just been a game plan thing. I agree. I have, I have faith. Um, let's go to at the truth 24 says, Steve. Who is the best X's and O's coach in the league who doesn't get any love? I feel like every coach gets love. Mm, tough one. Um, so that's an interesting one. You think you think uh, Borrego gets love? That's a good one. <laughs> he, would be, he, he would be a candidate. I would say Monty Williams would be a candidate. Yeah, but he's starting um, to get it now, I think, in, in what's going on in Phoenix. That's true. So I, I would have thrown him out there before they had this hot start. I always am going to put Spo up there. Even if he gets his flowers, I think what he does is great. Um, Carlisle runs some very good actions. Um, I'm trying to think. I think are the Blazers are the Blazers bad enough to where I can put Stotts on this list? I don't think so. Okay, that's what I thought. Never yeah. Mind. Um, do you think uh, what do you, what do you do you think Portland can write that ship? I think Portland's fine. Yeah. I think Portland. I think Portland's fine. I think um, they've had some injuries. Um, they're figuring some things out. Um, now the question is their ceiling, is it higher or lower? That's probably something we can revisit, but I don't think they're going to be out of the mix much longer. Um, I think they're, I think they're going to be okay. I was so bummed to see Zach Collins, who I, I liked what I saw at the beginning of the season from him. And then anytime, uh, so I've dislocated both my shoulders Oh um, yeah. Any anytime you have the shoulder dislocation, it it hits me. It hits me in the feels especially hard. Okay. Okay. I don't. I don't want that. Sounds painful. No, it's not. But, it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Both shoulders. Oh yeah. Both shoulders. The the like at the same time. No. Or? No. 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 The left one was in high school playing okay. playing actually uh, in a game. Um, and I came back and made the foul under the basket so it wouldn't get the easy layup. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then the right one was playing um, like flag football years later. Now, here's the question. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just curious. <laughs> when you did when you did the right one, the second one, did you know it immediately? Oh, yeah. But the the okay. the worst thing about it was the left one and the right one came out at different angles. So if you if you know your you know, ball and socket joint anatomy. Um, sometimes they come out interiorly or posteriorly and the angle of the left one, I could get it back in. Like I could get on the ground and kind of move your body around and you can find a way to get it back in the right one. Nope. That was, <laughs> that, that required, uh, multiple people and many hours later to get to the hospital. 
Um, yeah, so I knew instantly, right? I knew instantly, and I was familiar with the sensation of that pain. And so I was like talking to people about it. I was telling them what to do. You know, can you go here, hold this here? Um, and it was just, yeah, it was no good, man. All right, so we'll change the subject. Yeah, let's. Uh, what were we talking about? Basketball. <laughs> yeah, we were because knowing what's happening and not being able to do anything about it, that sounds terrible. It's, um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting Zen-like experience. Uh, uh, Steve, where can this was awesome? Where can people find you? Check you out? Tell tell people what you're doing these days. Just find me on the Twitter, man. At Steve Jones twenty, I will <laughs> supply you with way too many video clips, and you'll probably unfollow me, but you shouldn't. Is, is that all you do? Just put up video clips on Twitter? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Feels that's like a terrible. That's a terrible plug. I need to hire someone to plug me for me. Yeah, but that's me. I'll, I'll find. Someone. Oh yeah, here. <laughs> We're gonna do you do it. that, but do it better. That works. That totally works for me. Okay, you can <laughs> you can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Jones twenty. He's uh, he's one of the best. He's a Twitter legend. He's one of the best Twitter followers. Uh, just brings that film coordinator insight coaching stuff to all the clips, wonderful threads, in-game observations if you want a guy to chat with at night during the games. And just, I mean, who the stuff he does outside of Twitter, we can't even speak of it. It's so good. <laughs> That's funny. Did you, that was so much better. How did I do? Uh, okay. I, you did great. I will give you a sixth appearance. We'll add that on. <laughs> awesome. All right, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. If you want more Steve, we do have a post show over on patreon.com slash thinking basketball for Patreon subscribers. In it, we get into uh, best coaches in terms of late game X's and O's and execution. And also we talk about the larger philosophical implications of a copycat league, what that means for the style of the play and fan experiences and things like that. Huge thanks to Steve. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. And as always, a very special thanks to the Patreon subscribers who have made this podcast possible. You can go over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball, get a bunch more content, articles, access to all the proprietary stats you hear on this podcast and on the Thinking Basketball YouTube videos. And that's it. Until the next episode, I will talk to you later. And I hope you're all having a great day.